Well, good morning, church. How are y'all this morning? Doing well? Well, obviously, we fired the band for this morning. So worship is going to look and sound a little bit different, but I think that God still shows up no matter what it looks like or what it sounds like. So this morning, would y'all stand up and greet each other, and then we will begin to worship together.
sorrow and dead in my sin Lost without hope with no place to begin Your love made a way to let mercy come in When death was arrested in my life was redeemed only beauty remains and my orphan heart was given a name my morning quiet my fear rose to dance when death was arrested and my life began for your grace so She's over me. You have made me new now. Life begins with you. It's your endless love pouring down on us. You have made us new. Chains, I'm a prisoner no more. My shame was a ransom he faithfully bore. He canceled my debt and he called me his friend. When death was arrested and my life began, for your grace so
Good to see all of you here. Welcome to Shelby Christian, especially this is your first time. We really enjoy having you here. Uh, last night, if you weren't with us, we had a great marriage ministry dinner last night and cookout. And boy, did we eat good. It was a lot of fun. We had to play some games. Um, we just had a very, very good time last night. Um, our ministry here with marriage ministry is to strengthen and encourage marriages. And it never hurts to be able to eat. And you can tell I like eating. Uh, this morning as we uh, think about communion, I- I'm reminded of how many times Jesus was accused of sitting down and eating with sinners and tax collectors. Now, in Jesus' day, in their culture, if you sat down and broke bread with somebody, it meant that you considered them an equal. You considered them, you accepted them. And so when Jesus sat down with tax collectors who were considered some of the most evil people in Jewish society because they would collect money for Rome, but they'd also keep part of it as a kickback to themselves. So they were stealing from their own people. And Jesus went and he called Matthew. Matthew was sitting at his tax collecting station and said, come follow me. And that night they went to Matthew's house and they sat down and Jesus ate with tax collectors and sinners. And the Pharisee came and said, why do you sit down and eat and drink with these tax collectors? And Jesus said, it is not the healthy that you call a doctor for, but the sick. He said, I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners. It is a great thought to think that Jesus would sit down and eat with me and with you. To this day, this table, this communion table that we come to and get our communion, we sit down at the table with Jesus. Aren't you glad that he'll sit down and eat with you? Let's pray together. Oh, Father God, we just praise you this morning. And we thank you for your son, which came to this earth and gave up so much of what he had in heaven to walk among us, to sit and to eat and to drink with us. But most of all, to live out a sinless life and to give his life up on that cross. Father, as we come to the communion table this morning, I pray that we come giving our sins to you. Repenting and saying, God, we don't want to be this way anymore. We want to be righteous like you. So forgive us of our sins, Father, as we sit down at the table of our Savior. We ask this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.
guys pray with me again? Lord God, we, we want to continually be reminded that you are the King of kings. That you are the Lord of lords. God, that you are the God of resurrection and of new life. And God, we understand that that comes only through your Son, Jesus Christ. And so I'm thankful, we're thankful for songs like that that were written by simple men and women to remind us of the power and the majesty and the glory that is your story that you want to continually tell through our lives and through our church. God, thank you for loving us that much, that you would use us simple people, but that you would choose to use us in mighty ways to continually tell your story, your resurrection, the new life that we see come forth all the time because of you, only because of you. We thank you for that. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Let me ask you guys a question this morning. This is kind of a weird question, but but do you have do you have any scars on your body? Like when you look at maybe some of those scars that you have on your body, do they remind you of something? I don't have very many, so I don't know if that means that I've lived a pretty safe life or whatever. I usually look at people that have a lot of scars, you know, like, man, they've probably lived some adventurous life, broken arms, broken legs, those kind of shark bites. I don't know. I don't have any of that kind of stuff. But I have a few. I have like a little uh, little scar on my finger that I'm reminded of when I was in fifth grade. We were in the bathroom at Simpsonville Elementary. Uh, felt like fifth grade boys would probably be just kind of playing around, goofing around. And one of the other boys slammed my finger in the door, like this big wooden door, like the outside door. And it cut it wide open. I had to go. I got to leave school, but I had to go get stitches in my finger. I, when I still see that little scar, I'm reminded of that of that incident, that story. I got another one on this thumb when I was in high school. We were in the in, the, uh, in our garage actually lifting weights uh, during football season, and I pinched my thumb on the between the bar and the bracket. When we were lifting weights, and it took a big chunk out of my thumb, and that little scar is still there. I have a couple on my stomach from a gallbladder surgery. Maybe you have surgery or, or scars that you look at, and they remind you of surgeries. Maybe they remind you of incidents, of accidents. But when you look at those things, it's like, oh yeah, I remember that. That was not such a fun time in my life. Maybe it's not a, a physical scar as much as it is a emotional scar, a wound that is now kind of healed over because of time. You know, we've been looking through this last nine weeks, the the life of King David, and it's this fascinating life, and it's this life of a a man who God looks at his heart and says, his heart's like my heart. He has a God-like heart. But then when you look into his life, like we've been doing over over this summer, what you start to see is some really ugly things. And you, you begin to question, like, God, how could a man who could live like that cause so many other scars in other people's lives, emotional and physical and really do a lot of damage to other people. How could you look at him and go, yep, that's exactly the kind of guy that I want and need and I'm after. We're going to look into that today as we kind of wrap up this series. But I've thought about that over the last several weeks and, and really just a couple months as I've really dove in to the life of David. And God, how could you use 
a guy like that. It's not just that he's not a good guy. Sometimes you can look at some of the things that he did and you're like, not only is he just like, just a, it's horrible stuff. It's like this guy did some really horrible things. And God, how could you use someone like that? You think about the fact that he was an adulterer and a murderer, right? First, right off the bat, it's like, man, those are horrible things. He was a mercenary raider and he was a hated father. He caused a lot of suffering with his people. We're going to look at one of those instances today. He was on his deathbed. He's ordering the execution of his enemies. He's one of these guys who enjoyed many wives and concubines and he broke God's laws and man's laws time after time after time. And he caused a lot of other people a lot of hurt and a lot of heartache and a lot of scars and a lot of trauma. And you look at a life like that and you're like, why in the world will we spend so much time talking about someone like that? And I think today you'll understand and you've probably understood this through this series that David's a lot like us. His life's complicated, right? It's this mixed bag. It's just like there's the good, there's the bad, there's, there's good seasons, there's bad seasons, there's things that he causes, there's things that uh, just happen to him because he lives in a sin, sinful, broken world, right? And so the same thing is applicable to us today. But in the middle of all that, David keeps fighting. He keeps fighting, but <laughs> life keeps hitting back. Sometimes things don't work out for him. Sometimes things don't work out for us. And we can look at life and you can get to a place in life sometimes. You're like, man, this is just a shattered mess. And what we're going to see today is as David gets to the end of his life, things don't necessarily get a lot better for him. And, and, and so for us, I wonder what, what kind of hope and, and encouragement we can find in a story like that. And, and maybe there is some. And that's going to be the, the challenge this morning. That's going to be the place that we want to go today. But before we go there, I want you guys to understand just some of the truths about David as we kind of close out this series. And we've taken a hard look at his life. And in the beginning, it was kind of like this glory road of things that were going on. And he was the golden boy in those early years. And then he gets to this middle part. Part of, of his life where it's a mixed bag of things, good and bad, a lot of bad that he causes. And then he gets to the end of his life. He, he's about 70 years old. And we're going to look at this today. And this is kind of the season that he finds himself in here. Uh, here's the first thing I want you to understand about, about David, the truth about David. The first truth is this, that David had a lot of doubts. He had some doubts about God. Through the, the Psalms, we see that David contends with his faith, his faith about God. Look, look at what he wrote in Psalm 13. He says this, Oh, how long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How must I wrestle with my thoughts every day, have sorrow in my heart? You can read David's words in Psalms and realize that he at times had this very pessimistic view of life and of what was going on around him. But then he would always kind of turn it. It would always kind of turn to this like optimistic view of who God was. He would look at his plight. He would look at his situation. He would look at what kind of what was going on in the world around him. And he would say, man, this is bad stuff. But then he would make a turn because if you look in that same Psalm in Psalm 13, just a couple verses later, he writes this, but I will trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will bring, I will sing to the Lord for he has been good to me. David's doubt seemed like a negative aspect of his life. And we may look at that and think that it, it is, but, but I don't think that's necessarily true because here's what I think happens with doubt. 
I think God is, I know God is bigger than our doubt. Sometimes we think that doubt is kind of the absence of faith, but it's really not. Doubt is kind of like in our lives when we doubt things and question things and ask and think and contemplate. And if we're all honest, right, we have doubted God. We've doubted things that, like, God, how could you? God, why would you? God, why is this? God, God, do you exist? God, I don't feel like, we, we have doubts. And I've always been interested in, in people's doubts because here's what, what I think happens in the middle of our doubts. I love, I, I, when I was a student, I would, you know, it's easy to kind of like kind of with students when they would ask hard questions to kind of ignore them or sweep them under the rug or kind of oh let's not talk about that but i always kind of enjoy kind of having those conversations about some of the real things that people wrestle with in life because here's what i've found to be true and i think this is what exactly what david found to be true in his life is that if we know that god is the author of all truth which he is like god is truth that when we search and we doubt and when we question things what what god knows even before we know it is if we continue to ask questions and seek the truth that it's going to bring us full circle right back to God. And that's exactly what happens in David's life. There's time after time after time he would look at things and go, God, why? Why would you do this? Why would you allow this to happen? What in the world's going on here? And, And he has all these doubts and complaints and all these concerns, but he always comes back to this relationship with his Lord. God is the, the source of all truth. And so when we seek ultimate truth in life, it will bring us back. God knows that, like I said, even before we did. So David often doubted God. He didn't let that, though, ruin his relationship with the Lord. He would always repent and return to the Lord. He had this incredible ability to deny himself and then rely on God. To deny himself and go, you know what? I've got those thoughts. I've got those questions. But I know my God. And I know he is faithful, and I know he is true, and I know he is the source of truth, and I'm always going to return back to him. And so even in the middle of David's doubts and concerns, he would always come back to God. The second thing is that truth about David was that David's most destructive sin was pride. We could look at David's life and look at that episode with Bathsheba right there in the middle of his life and go, well, his big, his big deal, his big sin was like lust, right? And look, look, you know, lusting after this woman and wanting her to be, you know, be with him and these things that kind of caused all these other sins in his life to kind of happen. But really, pride was his most destructive sin. In 2 Samuel, David decides to take a census. Of Israel. Now you hear that and you're like, well, what's the big deal with that? That doesn't seem like a, a very big, you know, deal. Here's the deal. God had told David, I don't want you to, I don't want you to number the people of Israel. I don't, I don't want you to, to bask in the glory of knowing how great the Israelite nation is. I don't want you to think that like, hey, I'm this guy in charge of this big, powerful group of people. So I don't want you to number them. I don't want you to count my people. Don't take a census. Well, Guess what David does? David decides to take a census. In, in 2 Samuel, Samuel will read about this. He takes his census. He doesn't listen to God. And so God has commanded him not to do this, but he goes forward with this plan anyways. He sends out uh, Joab. You might remember him as his number one commander. He sends him out for the, to do this survey of all the people of Israel. And the Bible says that it takes about nine and a half months for him to take this survey. So he goes out to all the villages and all the, the little towns and all the places 
of Israel and Judah. And, and they take a census of all the people. It's actually recorded here in 2 Samuel 24. It says, having gone through the entire land for nine months and 20 days, they returned to Jerusalem. Joab reported the number of people to the king. There were about 800,000 capable warriors in Israel who, had handled a, who could handle a sword, sword and 500 in Judah. So if you do a little math there and kind of extrapolate that out, like they were just counting the able-bodied men in this scenario. But if you kind of think about that, that's 1.3 million soldiers or capable soldiers that they counted. So if you think five, six times that when you talk about women and children and elderly and those kind of things. So you're talking about a group of people at that time, five, six, seven million people, right? Which in, in, in today's world doesn't sound like a large group of people like there's like there's almost five million people in the state of kentucky but in that time that's a lot of people right and so david he he hears this and he sees this and he and he gets this report back and you can imagine how that would cause him to puff up and to think wow Look at, look at what we've done. Look at what I am in control of. Look at what I am in charge of. And the prideful David wanted to revel in these numbers. He wanted to know how many people he ruled over. He felt he deserved to celebrate his accomplishments. And so God, because he had told him, don't take a census, don't do this, he's displeased with David, the decision to take the census. And he sends a name, a guy named Gad, who is a spiritual advisor to rebuke David to kind of, just like God does with Nathan. Now he sends Gad and he says, I want you to go talk to David, tell him, look, I am not happy with what he's done. There's going to be consequences because of what he's done. Because what we know and what we've seen throughout this whole series is that sin in our lives always has Consequences. Time and time again, when God, when David would break God's laws, when God would say, David, this is the rule. These are the rules. Don't, don't step outside of these. David would be like, okay, I'm going to step outside of those. I'm going to do my own thing. I want to do what I want to do, right? This prideful, arrogant attitude in his life. God comes back in and sends someone to, to David and says, all right, you've messed up. We got to, we got to talk about this. We got to deal with this. There's got to be consequences. And so Gad is the guy who comes to David and he reminds him that God had told him not to do that. And so look at what Gad said in second Chronicles 21. It says, Gad came to David and he said, these are your choices because you, you knowingly disobeyed God despite his warnings and despite what he had said. Now there's going to be some harsh discipline. So he says, these are the choices that the Lord has given you. Now think about this for a second. If you're the leader of several million people and God comes to you and says, all right, here, here's the deal. Here are your choices. Pick one. Door one, door two, or door three. Here they are. You may choose three years of famine for your people. That, that could be the punishment. Three years, a long time, right? Three months of destruction by the sword of your enemies or three days of a severe plague as the angel of the Lord brings devastation through the land of Israel. Decide what answer I should give the Lord who sent me. Now, can you imagine being David in this scenario? Here he is. He's again reminded of of his mistakes, of his sin. And he's like, I can't believe I've done something as stupid as this again. And I've done this. And now I've got, I've got to make this decision. And in verse uh, Chronicles 21, it says this, I'm in desperate, desperate situation. David said, he replied to God. He said, but let me fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercy is very great. Don't let me fall into human hands. So the Lord sent a plague upon Israel. And look at what happened. 70,000 people died as a result. 
David looks at this situation, he looks at point one, you know, point one, point two, point three, and he says, all right, well, I don't want the famine. We're kind of already going through that. I don't want, I don't want uh, your other enemies to come in and decimate us. God, I know you'll be as merciful as any of these decisions. I'll take three. And three was this plague that killed 70,000 people. Can you imagine being the man leading your people that you theoretically love and you've caused the death of 70,000 people? David's pride was the most destructive characteristic in his life. Yes, he was lustful, and, and, and because of that, Uriah ends up dead, and Bathsheba ends up having this baby that ends up dying, and there's some horrible things that happen there in the middle. But when you really deep de- de- delve down into David's life, it was his pride that caused the most destruction. Here's the third thing. David never really found peace in this life. While David lay on his deathbed, a plot was churning, another plot to take over his kingdom. His son, Adonijah, was, was trying to take over his kingdom and usurp David's plans. David had said out loud to some people and, and said, that this is the plan. Solomon, my son, is going to be the next king. Well, Adonijah didn't like that plan. And so he's trying to take the throne. There's this famine there that they're in the middle of in Israel the, due to King Saul's past sins. That's a whole other story. There's a civil war that's about to break out between the north and the south. Uh, David is, is old at this point. He's feeble. The Bible says that he's like, he can't keep warm. And so he's shaking and he would spend most of the day in bed. And so he's this elderly man that's dealing with all these things. Someone's trying to take over. It's one of his sons. Another one of his sons is now trying to come in and take the throne. There's this war that's about to break out. And now 70,000 people, because of his sin, because of his choices, are dead. Until David's last breath, there was one problem after another. Some of those were his fault, but some of them weren't. Some of them were were just because of a broken world. Some of them were resolved, but some of them weren't. And David never really fully rested in this world. That's not a very encouraging thing, is it? You may get to the end of your life and go, you know what? I didn't really find a lot of peace in this world. That's, That's David's story. That's a part of his story. It's not a very pretty part. Of his life. The fourth thing, the fourth truth about David's life is this big kind of overall truth is that David had many regrets. He sensed that he'd felt fallen short in his life, and he did. David's actions in some of these cases were his fault. Some of the times it was his fault because he was inactive. Like last, we talked about last week, he just didn't do anything when he needed to discipline his sons. He was responsible for a lot of these things. There was injustice in in the sin-torn world, and he was left wounded and and scared himself. I love this quote from J.S. Park in his book about King David. He wrote this. He said, A dying David realized two equally unsolvable problems, that the fallen world outside of him was too cruel to fight, and the fallen world inside of him was too crushing to bear. There's this tension, and there's this war, and there's this agony that comes at the end of his life that's, that's really kind of brutal when you read about it and think about it. The things that David's struggling with, the things he's struggling with inside of himself that he's caused, but then to look at this world that he's a part of and that he's had a part in creating because of, of who he is that's broken and fallen and sinful. And so David gets to the end of his life, And he has a lot of regrets about life as he looks back over the decades that he's walked this earth. And so I got to thinking about us. 
And I got to thinking about that sometimes the regrets that maybe we have in life as we get to a certain stage. Have you guys ever had any regrets? Have you ever gotten to a place in your life and looked back and gone, man, if I could go back... And do that over again, I'd make a different, you know, wisdom kind of comes with age. It's too bad that we're like, when we're 21, 22 years old, that we don't have all the wisdom that we have when we're in our 50s or 60s, right? Like, it's like, I wish I had, I wish I would have known, you know, then what I know now. And so maybe you look at life and go, man, there are some things that I wish I could go back and change. I, I looked at, a, I was kind of searching this week about, about this idea, and I came across a blog from a lady named Grace Blue Rock. She was a social worker in Tennessee. And, and part of her job for about six years is she was a, worked in the hospice uh, system. And so she would go in and sit with folks who were, were in the last days, weeks and, and months of, of their life. And so she would go sit with them, um, a hospital in their home, whatever the situation, probably in their home situation was. And so she was just there to kind of provide comfort for them and the family as a social worker. And so th- through her... Her experience as she sat there bedside as these folks took their last breath and tried to make peace with the time that they spent on this earth. She took down some notes in her conversations and her encounters with people. And while every story was unique and had some very, you know, unique, I'm sure very sad situations, maybe some, some happy things that they talked about, there were nine common regrets that she kind of kind of boiled it, boiled it down to that I want to share with you this morning. Nine common regrets that came up repeatedly. She compiled them into a blog and then into a book. Here's the first one. She said that people wished that they'd been more loving to the people who mattered most. Many people expressed sorrow for not having been more understanding, caring, and present for the people who were important to them. Second one is she said that people wished that they'd been a better spouse, parent, or child. Once they got terminally ill, it was their family who stuck by them, hold their, hold their hand to provide love and companionship and care for them around the clock. The third one is, she said they wished that they had not spent so much time working. Many had worked long, hard hours, and they regretted missing the important moments of their kids' lives. The fourth one, she says, they wished that they had taken more risks. Many felt that a fear of failure caused them to play it too safe in life. Number five is they wished they had been happier and enjoyed more life. Most people regretted the time they'd wasted worrying about the things beyond their control. I think I'm preaching to myself with this one. They didn't realize that they were capable of choosing fun and happiness until it was too late. Number six, they wished they'd lived their dreams. Many people's lifelong dreams went unfulfilled because they were too concerned with trying to live up to someone else's expectations. Number seven, they wished they had taken better care of themselves. Most patients thought, though, that it had, if they had eaten better, slept more, paid more attention to their health and well-being, that they might not have gotten sick. They wished they had made self-care more of a priority in the earlier years. Number eight, they wished they had done more for other people. Many patients made the decision, oftentimes right there in their hospice bed, to donate their money to charities and service organizations so they could possibly affect the lives of others after they were gone. And then number nine, they wished they had chosen more meaningful work. Many expressed that they had never enjoyed their job but stuck with it year after year because it paid the bills. They wished instead that they had chosen work that was in line with their purpose and their passion. 
work that they were excited about and give it, that had given them a sense of fulfillment. And so I wonder for you, as you hear that list, read that list, see that list, are there things on there that, that resonate with you? They're like, yeah, I can, I can, I'm totally with you on that one. Like that's when I wish I could, could go back. Here's the deal. As I thought about us, you know, we're, we're sitting here this morning and it's never too late, right? We're still, we're upright, we're breathing, we're not on our deathbed. And so it's like, there's this opportunity to say, God, what is it in life that you have for me? Even today, maybe even later, late, later in like the last, you know, you know, the last of, of life you're looking at, this is like the, 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 the backside of it. You know, David was looking at like 70, 80. Like, like, like I'll look at my life and go, man, almost 50 years old. Some of you guys are, you know, that age or older. You're like, all right, what is life going to look like in the next 10, 15, 20 years? And sometimes I get scared about that. Sometimes I get scared because I think about the regrets, some of these regrets that I have. But then I think about this passion and this purpose that God's putting in my life today for what he may have for me in the future, in the days and weeks to come. And so maybe the same thing applies to you this morning. Maybe you can be inspired by that and not discouraged by it. David got to the end of his life and he had a lot of regrets. You can read the Psalms and some of the things he wrote and he had a lot of regrets about his choices, the choices that others had made, and just the the kind of the, the situation that he was in in his elderly years. But then David got some things right. A lot of regrets, a lot of mistakes, But he got some things right too. Here's the first thing that David got right. David gave glory to God. In 2 Samuel 23, it's this kind of summation of David's life. It's kind of his final memoirs of a king determined to know, for everyone to know the truth about who he was and about who God was. And despite all that he had accomplished from Israel, up for Israel in his reign, David refused to steal the glory from God. For David, it had been about God. And he wrote this in 2 Samuel 23 too. He said, the spirit of the Lord speaks through me. His words are upon my tongue. And basically, David says in in 2 Samuel 23 and beyond, he says, anything that's good in me is God in me. If you look at my life and see anything good in my life, know that it's not me. That it's God working through me. That I'm speaking, God's speaking through me. That, that his spirit is leading me. And that my tongue is his tongue. His tongue is, is my tongue. It was God, David would say, who killed that lion. It was God who killed the bear. It was God who defeated Goliath. It was God who kept David safe all those years when he was on the run from King Saul. It was God who strengthened and expanded Israel beyond anyone's imagination. God made the Israelite nation into a super, uh, world superpower. God was more than clear. The glory, uh, David was more than clear. The glory for all of this goes to God. Give God the glory, David says. So he gets to this place where he realizes, I can't continue to seek the the, the glory for myself, that continues to get me in trouble. God, oh yeah, I'm reminded that you do all of this. And and so for us, I think the same thing is applicable, right? Anything that you have that's good in your life, that's a blessing in your life, right? We give God the glory. God, you have done this in our lives. We give God the glory just like David gave God the glory in his life. The second thing that David got right was David inspired a generation of giant killers. I love this part of David's life. David, later on in life, right here in the last few chapters of his life, the Philistine army, they pop back up and they're kind of wanting to like, they didn't learn their lesson the first time. So they kind of pop back up and they want to pick a fight with the Israelites. 
And David, he loved tangling with the Philistines because he's got a pretty good track record with the Philistines. So he's, he's kind of ready to go out there. And the younger guys come to David, King David, and they go, David, you know, let us handle this because, you know, you're older now and you're sick and we, don't, we, we can't afford to lose you. So you stay here. Let us go. We got this one. And there's this beautiful story, I don't know, beautiful, but it's pretty cool, I think, of these, these other young men. There's one's called Abishai, who kills this uh, uh, giant that once tried to corner David. There's another uh, young Israelite warrior called Sebeki, who killed another Goliath, uh, Goliath named Saph. And then a couple other men that, that, that killed Goliath's brothers and his sons. And David's nephew, he named one of his, ne- one of his nephews, he named Jonathan, who was his best friend, you'll remember. He topples another giant. The Bible says this giant had 12 fingers and 12 toes. I don't know why that's necessarily that important, but this seems like a pretty large, scary guy. That's who he was. And so you have this recording of these men, these young soldiers who were inspired. Now, here's the point, is that they had seen David as a young man years ago step out there into the valley and take on Goliath when he was a young man. Right? And that story had been told, and they knew that that's who David was. And so when these young men got, to, got the opportunity in their lives to face their giants... They had been inspired by their leader, David. He had left them that legacy, right? Uh, The heart of a champion. And so I got to thinking about us as well, how this is applicable in our lives. When our kids and our grandkids see us face the difficult things in our lives, our giants, our Goliaths, the things that we look at and go, how am I going to get through this? How am I going to conquer this? How in the world are we ever going to survive in the middle of whatever this is that we're dealing with? And our kids and our grandkids see us navigate that with the Lord leading us, that inspires the next generation. That inspires them to walk in those ways, in our ways and in God's ways. And that's exactly what happened in David's life. David slew one giant, but his influence on a generation made others into giant killers as well. His courage amid his encounter with Goliath showed them that they could do the same thing. The third thing, David's heart always, always belonged to the Lord. David's sins were real, his, his faith was real, and his repentance was real too. Look at Psalm 13, 5 and 6. It says this, I trust in your unfailing love. I will rejoice because you have rescued me. I will sing to the Lord because he has been so good to me. What was David's secret lifelong relationship with God? What was that secret? Well, you remember back in 1 Samuel where Samuel goes and says... I want you to look at Jesse's sons. And Samuel, you're gonna, you're gonna look at the outside appearance. You're gonna look at how tall they are, how handsome they are. You're gonna look at the outward appearance, but I want you to know that's not how I look at people. God said, I'm going to look where? At their hearts. He says that in 1 Samuel 16. He said, the Lord doesn't see things the way you see things, Samuel. People judge by outward appearance. But the Lord looks at the heart. And here, Herein lies the genius with David. You can look at his life. You can look at all the things he did, all the things that he got wrong, all the all the the incredible devastation that he caused to his people because of his actions. But in the end, what God saw was past what he was doing and knew who he was. He could see his heart. And in that incredibly powerful passage there, in the very first part of David's story, is the key to the whole thing is that God looks at 
the heart. Man, we get caught up with the outward appearance, but God looks at someone's heart. He looks at our hearts, and there's the the thing. His heart in the eyes of God. God saw something in David's heart that God loved and that God never gave up on. The trajectory of David's whole life, the the, the onward, forward-looking trajectory of his whole life was Godward. It was always toward God. Yeah, there were a lot of stumbles and falls and fails and, and a lot of things that happened. But, but David was always fo- focused on God. And God was always focused on David's heart. And there's, there's where it is. David never gave up on God and God never gave up on David. And so for us, it's tempting, right? It's tempting for us to look at this guy and go, well, God, how could you look at him how could you how could you say these things about him with all this story kind of compiled in the, in the Old Testament and chapter after chapter written about the things that David did some good a lot bad but how could we how could we look at that how could you look at that life and go that's the heart that I'm after and that's where it is right is a lot of times we look at those outward things and God says I'm after his heart. I'm after the thing that really matters most. David's life was something that God looked at from the inside out. God saw his heart and knew that this was a man that he could use. And so here's my bottom line this morning. God's will is less about what we do and so much more about who we are becoming. A lot of times we get caught up in like, this is what I need to do. God, this is what you are calling me to do. And it is, there are things that he's called us to do. But who are we becoming? What kind of a person are you becoming? There's these things that God wants for our lives that he says, I've got these big plans and I've got a purpose for your life. I want to instill in you a passion for something that's beyond maybe what you could even imagine. And so maybe we pray and we think, God, what are you, what are you doing in my life? What do you want for my life? How could I, in, in this stage of my life, do things for you that I, maybe I can't even dream or imagine? There are things that God wants us to do, but it's far more important about who we're becoming as people. David got to the end of his life, and he could say, God, above all else, I know that you've been with me, and you've been faithful, and that you are my God, and you are my Lord. I know that I haven't always been faithful, and I know that I've let you down time again, time after time after time. But I know that you're true, and you're holy, and you're with me. You know, in the in the New Testament... John chapter 20, there's a scene where after Jesus has, has been resurrected and has gone away from the disciples, that there's all this confusion that takes place. And people start to doubt. They start to doubt, like, is, is he going to come back? Was this, like, was, it, is, was this real? Did we, did, is, he, is he really alive? Like, the tomb's empty. Where is he? What's going on? And then Jesus started appearing to his disciples. And there was still this, like, is that, is that really him? There were these doubts. About what God could do and what he was doing and what he had become. And Jesus appears in a certain in a room in, in, in John chapter 20, and he says, Here, I want you to I want you to look. I want you to look at my my hands. I want you to look at my arms. Do you see these scars? I want you to look at my side. See the scar? And Jesus reminds the people there, another, another, another occasion, uh, another disciple comes and says, I'm not going to believe any of this until I see Jesus for myself. And I want to touch those scars. I want to touch those wounds. I'm not going to believe it until I see it. And Jesus says, here they are. Here are these scars. And they said, we believe now. 
because we see those scars and we realize that those scars are not because of, of anything that you've done. They weren't accidents. They weren't because of mistakes that you made. Those scars are because of us. And that's the point this morning for us is that the scars that Jesus has, they cover all of our scars. They cover all of our sins. They cover David's and they'll cover yours. What we just have to do is say, God, I understand that your scars, they cover it all. And so we're reminded, Jesus, you did that for me. The Holy Spirit, your Holy Spirit lives in us today because of what Jesus did on the cross and the fact that we've accepted that and that are following that today. David in the Old Testament, he was following after the Lord. He didn't, he didn't have, he, he could listen to the Lord. He could hear about the Lord. But the promise that we have this morning is for those of us who would follow Jesus Christ, that his spirit will come and live inside of us and the sins and the things that we carry he says i'll take those away and i'll remind you that my scars cover your scars and that whatever this world may bring you whatever emotional and physical and spiritual pain that this world may cause because of things you did or the things that other people did know that i conquer it all and that that is something that we can celebrate in that's something that we can be encouraged with. And that's the hope that we need to leave this place with this morning. And so my prayer for you guys is, is exactly that. Is that as you leave today, as you go out amongst you know your life this week, your schedule, wherever the, your day and your week may take you, that maybe you're going to come into a conversation, you're going to come into contact with someone else that's broken down and beaten. Maybe by this world, maybe by the things that they've caused, their sins or someone else's. And maybe you could have a conversation with them. You could just share the truth with them about who God is and what he's done through Jesus. And that it's going to be okay. We may not find that okayness. That's not a word. But we may not find that in this life. But the promise is for those of us who hold on to eternity that we will be made new. And we will be made whole again in the future. And that promise is heaven. And that's what we hold on to. Would you guys pray with me? Lord God, this morning we thank you. We thank you for this story of, of David's life. We thank you for, for the opportunity to, to, to dig into it and to delve into it this summer. And God, it is, it's complicated. And it reminds us of, of, of life in general. It is complicated. And it is that mixed bag of, of good and bad. But in the end, we know that all things work out for those who are called according to you, to your name, to your purpose. God, that you will use the heartbreak, you'll use the agony, you'll use the things that we go through. If we'll give that to you, if we'll give those scars and the pains of that and those wounds, if we'll give those over to you, you'll use those in a mighty way to do something incredible, to point other people back to you, to be reminded that you are the only one that heals us and makes us new and picks up the pieces of the brokenness. God, that's, that's what you did with David time and time again. He would mess it up. He would break it. He would destroy it. And you would come in. And you would pick up the pieces. 
and remind him about who you are in the midst of what he was about. And you would remind him about who he was becoming, that he was this person who had a God-like heart. God, may we be people who have God-like hearts. May we magnify you. May we reflect you in the way that we love and live in the life that we have and what we're becoming as we seek a relationship with Jesus. God, my prayer this morning is if there's one person today here that needs to know you, that needs to accept you, that needs to make that decision that they would come forward and we could talk to them and pray with them as we sing this invitation song. God, for the rest of us, may we leave this place today encouraged with your word, encouraged by song, encouraged by being together and reminded of who we are and who we're becoming. Not because of us, but because of what you're doing in us. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Would you guys stand? Let's sing this song.
guys realize this, um, but the encouragement for a church, for, for a younger generation that did, doesn't even necessarily get to, to experience this right now, but like when, when I'm just standing up here and listening to a group of mature Christians say and sing and declare. I don't know, like I could tell like when we got to that, God, you have been faithful. Like you guys kicked, like you're singing that with your heart. You're singing that with, like I, I know that there are stories out here of people, of families, of marriages, of lives where you're just singing. You you just have de- are declaring with your life that God is faithful and that he is good and that he has passionately been pursuing your, you your whole life. Here, let me encourage you with this this week. Share that, that song that we just sang. Share that with somebody this week. Because I guarantee you that you're going you're gonna to come across someone this week that needs to know of a God who is good and faithful in the middle of a world that is not. Hey, just a few announcements before you guys get out of here. Uh, we're, our next Pathways is August the 3rd, 6 o'clock, out here in the Common Ground. So uh, if you or anyone you know maybe need to be here that night for uh, just a, a, one of those session one, two, or three as we talk about what it looks like to be a part of the church, maybe for someone who's thinking about baptism, uh, what it looks like to jump into a life group, uh, to serve, those kind of things. August the 3rd is our next Pathways. You can sign up online for that. Uh, it's coming up. Also, the 8th, which is, so next Sunday's the first day will be back next Sunday to kick off a brand new series called Playground. We're going to look at how some of those rules on the playground uh, kind of um, parallel with like the gospel, some of those gospel rules that Jesus taught us and, and kind of learn from those things. It's called Playground Day. We'll kick that off next week. Then the next week, the 8th, we'll be out at the park for one service, 10 o'clock out there. We're going to provide drinks and desserts. And we're asking people just to bring, if you guys want to bring a picnic lunch for your family or for your life group, for a small group to have that, enjoy that right after the 10 o'clock service. So remember that. We're here next week and then one service on the 8th out at, at Clear Creek Park as we rock the creek. All right. You guys have an incredible week. We love you guys. Let's go love God, love people and change this world.